I'm J.P. Tuesday. And I'm Kiki Cannon. As lifelong Disney fans, the work of countless talented Disney creatives have shaped our lives. Now, as the Disney catalog expands, we're taking a journey through film and television to discover if that spark that shaped us as children lives on in adulthood. Does your favorite Disney media still cast that same spell? Join us as we find out. We are Rewatching the Magic. Happy 100th episode, Kiki! Happy 100 Tuesday! I can't believe we're here 100 episodes. And, well, we couldn't do a 100th episode alone. We are not alone this week, Kiki. Yeah, uh, we have a very, very, very special guest that we have been saving for uh, if we ever made it this far. And they were kind enough to join us. So will our mystery guest enter and sign in, please? Hello, I'm Tony Goldmark, and I'm completely imperfect in every way. Yay, Tony Goldmark, <laughs> a.k.a. some jerk with a camera, a.k.a. the host of Escape from Vault Disney, the podcast that does Disney stuff in random order whenever they feel like it. <laughs> and I always over-explain everything. <laughs> um, that's why we wanted to get Tony on for the 100th, because you're probably the biggest Disney guy I know, and I know Luke will probably be jealous of that. <laughs> well... <laughs> Well, Luke's a bigger guy than me in a lot of other factors, like like how to draw, for example. But um, um, but yeah, I've been obsessed with Disney stuff all my life. That's part of why I created Escape from Vault Disney is because the, allowing the episodes to be picked by randomizer makes for a really good blend of movies and TV shows that I'm an expert in and movies and TV shows that I know absolutely nothing about because because they're just these obscure little curiosities that I've never quite gotten around to. So it's a nice mix of expertise and confusion. <laughs> uh, but this, but in this, this one is going to be one that... Uh... We're all uh, for, and the reason, this is probably the number one that we get of, like, why haven't you done it before? And the answer right, is right. we were saving it for our 100th episode. We decided well, a long time ago if we ever made it to episode 100, this would be the one we we tackled. And that was back when we thought we couldn't get past episode 10. <laughs> yeah. But before we get to that, uh, something that all of us are, are have been looking forward to uh muppets haunted mansion came out days before we recorded this uh what do you guys your general thoughts on the on the special yeah Loved no it. spoilers just just so anybody listening no spoilers you don't have to skip anything just general stuff tony absolutely i absolutely loved it it i was thoroughly satisfied and delighted as both a muppets fanboy and a haunted mansion fanboy it was everything I wanted it to be. It's mwah, chef's kiss. Brilliant. Go check it out if you haven't already. I love the references to the to the ride. Even references I didn't expect. Um, if you've ever written the Haunted Mansion ride, you'll understand what I'm talking about. Like There's these things that, I don't want to spoil it, but there's a thing that rarely happens on the ride. And if you've ever written the ride and certain things happened, you know what I'm talking about, and I don't. And the fact that he put that in the in the film in the special, and also rep characters that we haven't seen in decades show up in this special. Even 
segments from the old Muppet Show get referenced, and I love that. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, well, uh, one in one in there's one uh, kind of Muppets Haunted Mansion cross reference that is actually kind of obvious when you stop to think about it, but it hadn't occurred to me, so I was pleasantly surprised. <laughs> yeah, we've talked about Kirk Thatcher a lot before on the show. Um, and he was the director, co-writer, uh, for this. Um, so mm -hmm. this was his love letter to Muppets and Haunted Mansion. Uh, Absolutely. And Kirk is such a good guy. Um. I've heard, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, we've, we've talked before on the show, but, um, I, I had... I've had the pleasure of having some small contact with him before and just the sweetest, nicest guy. Um, wonderful, wonderful man. Um, huge, both Muppets fanboy and Muppets professional. Mm -hmm. So this is a man who knows his Muppets. And it comes through in every moment of this special. Um, so if you're the type of person who has the Muppets wiki memorized, you will immediately go, oh, <laughs> okay, that is some obscure stuff they're pulling out there. Um, and every bit of it pays off. They have redone and i don't think this is a spoiler but uh, they have redone the uh infamous wallpaper oh yeah in yeah, a muppet yeah. style and i really want that pattern i hope somebody has uploaded it to, to spoonflower already because i want that fabric so that i can make clothing out of it mm. um i want the muppet version of that pattern i i know that uh frequently if you are smart enough you can usually get that pattern <laughs> if you know where to find it uh so that you can make clothing out of it um but uh the the typical disney pattern but uh i hope somebody uh people have already started putting up high high res versions of it as like you know phone wallpapers and stuff like that. I, so, I think Disney themselves did as well. Uh yeah, I I think the official Muppets page may have may have put up a good high res version. So I'm really hoping that the cosplayers have have snagged that artwork and uh are are putting it in the usual places so that I can eventually have clothing made out of it because oh my God, that's so beautiful. Um I will say that um when you watch the special or if you have already seen it, my personal favorite part is where they take the ride Muppets and one particular Disney film and shove it all together for a musical number. Yeah. <laughs> yep. It's uh, it's definitely the turducken of, uh, of yeah. the musical. Song. There, there is a Disney turducken musical number, yeah, and and that was brilliant. So I I love that, and it was it was very good. And all of the celebrity cameos were perfectly placed, and none of them felt out of like they didn't pull you out of the movie. 
Right, right, absolutely. So, really well done. And I heard that they filmed a lot of it on the same um, virtual stage they did the um, Mandalorian on. Oh, cool. (laughs) So, I think that that's kind of why it it looks the way it does. That for COVID reasons, they kind of filmed it in that virtual space. Gotcha, gotcha. I'm not sure how true that is, but that's, that's what I've heard. Well, the the beauty part is Muppets don't breathe, so Muppets can't catch COVID. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, if, if you had told poor Muppeteers, if you had told me that they had filmed this on the actual ride itself at Disneyland Park, I would believe you. Not like some anyone was there. Looks, some of it kind of looks like that. Yeah, it's it, it definitely a good recreation. Yeah, I I think that's why is I think they did that virtual space, so I think they may have filmed inside the ride and then you know put that footage in to film the performers against maybe yeah so but yeah if you, if you haven't seen it go so, so go see it and i'm i want i'm looking forward to more productions i mean they said that they have a some more muppet productions on the way when they first announced this i can't wait to find out what they are especially if kirk thatcher is doing it yeah <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Muppet Haunted Mansion got, like, the most positive reaction, certainly from social media, that just about any Muppets project has gotten since, I gotta go all the way back to Muppets 2011, uh, the Jason Segel movie. So, yeah, I hope they just stay the course and produce more cool stuff like this. Yeah. (laughs) All right, so yeah, thumbs up for Muppets Haunted Mansion. Uh, So let's move on to... The main event, the, the main feature of tonight's episode, today's episode, Mary Poppins. Mary Poppins. <laughs> well, it's better than Dick Van Dyke's accent. No, it's, uh, well, <laughs> nothing is better than Dick Van Dyke's accent, but we'll go into that. <laughs> Are arguably the best movie that Walt Disney ever had any part of. <laughs> oh, yeah. I would say it is. I would say it's yeah. the best movie of the Walt era. It's often referred to as Walt Disney's masterpiece, just personally. Now, the word masterpiece is thrown around a lot, but in classical art, it has a very specific meaning. It refers to an artist's single greatest work, not necessarily their best work. You know, that's subjective, but something usually produced towards the end of their career, which represents the culmination of their life's work, something that just utilizes everything they've learned, every skill and instinct that they've amassed over their career. And in that respect, Mary Poppins is absolutely Walt's masterpiece. It just has everything in it. Everything we love about classic Walt era Disney is all crammed into this one amazing movie. And yet, I think the miracle of it is that it's not a greatest hits album either. You know, it it, it accomplishes the impossible in that it's simultaneously feels like that culmination of Walt's entire life without really feeling too derivative of his past work either. It has an originality and a vivaciousness and vitality all its own and contains quite a few things that weren't very typical of what he was doing at the time. And, um, and, and, and you know, there we, we, I'm sure we'll get into the reasons why that is, but, um, <laughs> but, but yeah, it is, it is absolutely, it, I, I would definitely say it's the greatest film of Walt's career, and I would argue also the best. 
I'm kind of glad that it took him 20 years to get the rights because if he had made this movie 20 years earlier, I don't think it would have been as good. Right. Yeah. It, it, I'm I'm sure you're probably right about that. And like you said, it took him 20 years to get the rights to this movie just because P.L. Travers was so famously uh, persnickety, shall we say, or or, or very protective, at, at let's first, say. Yeah, spent spent the spent twenty years just flat out saying no because she didn't care for Walt Disney's work, and uh, and of course there was that doc there was not documentary but there was that <laughs> biopic Saving Mr. Banks, uh, featuring Emma Thompson as P.L. Travers and Tom Hanks as Walt Disney, uh, that depicted the relationship between the two, and that movie got some things right and some things wrong, like um you know her reputation among disney fans and people who've seen saving mr banks of course is that of you know being this difficult shrew of being this damaged woman with a tragic childhood who was never satisfied who almost ruined one of the greatest films ever now that's partly true but at the same time i don't think people in general appreciate also what she contributed to this film uh, I, Saving Mr. Banks certainly didn't. And to be fair, I don't think she appreciated what she contributed to this film because she famously hated the finished film. So maybe that's fair. For the day but, she died. Yeah, absolutely. But for all the fighting and for all the dissatisfaction, especially on her part, I truly don't think it would have been as good a film without her demanding input, as misplaced as it sometimes was. Uh, especially when it comes to the character of Mary Poppins herself. One of P.L. Travers' biggest concerns about the movie, and not unfounded given Walt Disney's previous work, she was afraid that Walt was going to turn Mary Poppins into Snow White. That uh, that the character, or, or Cinderella, or Tinkerbell or something, that the character was just going to be this beautiful, pleasant, one-dimensional fairy princess who saves the day and solves everyone's problems just like that. And she's really not in the finished film. I think largely thanks to P.L. Travers' insistence, uh, you know, when, when the Disney Renaissance happened, you people credited Ariel as Disney's first, quote, strong female character. But 25 years earlier, Mary Poppins wasn't taking any shit. You know, she was strong. She was powerful. She was clever. She knew what she wanted. She knew how to get it. And as she said herself, she was kind but very firm. She's honestly kind of a badass in this movie. Like, if, if it were made today, people would absolutely call her a Mary Sue. Let's be honest. She was Mary Sue Poppins. Uh, she's Mary Poppins, y'all, basically. <laughs> and, and, and the thing is, after P.L. Travers ultimately signed away the movie rights, you know, Walt went and made the movie he wanted to make. He took the suggestions he liked, dismissed the ones he didn't like, just like with just like he did with every project. But I must say, the fact that Walt did actually take Travers' suggestions on the character of Mary Poppins to heart and actually made her more than just the average Disney heroine, that's a testament to how much that was absolutely the right decision. Like, if you even convinced Walt to make your female lead less of a stereotype, you're doing something right. <laughs> Have either of you ever read any of the mary poppins books i have not i have not unfortunately yeah it's you know i mean i hate to say it but they were not the sort of things i would have read as a kid um were they just not good or were they just too weird i don't know or? i don't i mean i have no idea it's just um 
Oh, you haven't read them either? Or? Yeah, it just it, it's that they were just not the sort of things that would have appealed to me as a kid. Um, right. So I I have no idea how our you know Julie Andrews you know practically perfect you know rosy cheeks cheery disposition version right. of Mary Poppins is compared to what P.L. Travers actually wrote. I always, yeah. again, I, I'm going by hearsay. I'm going by book reviews in that the book version of Poppins was more conceited than the version in the film. Right. And, and I, I know P.L. Travers uh, criticized, at first criticized the casting choice of Julie Andrews because she thought Julie Andrews was too pretty. She, did, uh, she didn't think Mary Poppins should look that young or be that conventionally attractive. I have a theory on that. Yeah? I have a theory because we don't... The movie of Saving Mr. Banks does not cover this. P.L. Right. Travers was an actor. Oh, really? P.L. Travers was a Shakespearean actor before becoming a mm. writer. Okay, so I always good. thought that Travers herself wanted to play Mary Poppins and was just... Uh, bitter on some level, maybe not overly hatred for Julie Andrews, but on some level thought, why not me? Why don't I play Mary Poppins? I don't have any, I I don't have any bias on this. I'm just going by the fact that Travers was an actor and everything I've heard about Poppins seems to mirror a lot of Travers on some level. So that always stuck in the back of my mind that on some level, Maybe Travers wanted to play Mary Poppins. May, that that could be. Uh, although I feel like if if it were anything more than subliminal on, in that regard, sh- that would have been something she would have started demanded from the moment people. Because Walt was not the only person who wanted to make a Mary Poppins movie or adapt it to other mediums. I, I feel like that would have been a demand she would have m- been making overt from day one if it was anything more than a subliminal thing. I think but, like a lot of create creators, and we've known a few people who've created television right. shows and movies and stuff, that on some level their main character in their mind is a mirror of themselves. Sure. And when, yeah, that, absolutely. And when that main character differentiates I mean, I, from their mind's eye, there's gonna be problems. And I think I that's, mean, that's what, that yeah, that's certainly the case with this movie and Mr. Banks. He's in many ways a mirror of Walt. And but we'll get into that, I'm sure. Yeah, we, as we said, this uh, you know the history of this movie is well known. Again, they made a whole movie about it. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, fact. You know, whether it's completely factual or not, it's not. But <laughs> yeah, it's but, not. But like I the, said, got some things right, got some things wrong. Trevor right? demands. You know, we know this. Right, right. But you know, on some level, it's it's still her character and. As anyone who's ever had to, uh, I mean, we've again, we've known a lot of creators who have had to sell characters that they know and love and created to another company and has worries of what the, what's going to happen to those characters. Mm-hmm. Especially we have, we have friends in the animation industry who have to sell shows with full knowledge of these characters will no longer be theirs and now will belong to, you know, uh, Warner or Disney or Universal or whoever, they won't yeah, be. It, it, like 
that, that's, I mean, that's the trade-off ultimately. And, uh, and that's a big reason why it took her so long to be comfortable, um, you know, signing off the rights to Mary Poppins. And as a matter of fact, we still to this day, and we never will know exactly how she was convinced to do that because, okay, a, as was depicted in Saving Mr. Banks, when she left, you know, her, her like two week stay at the Burbank lot, um, w- w- you know, w- working with Walt, you know, she still hadn't signed the rights by that point. And Walt ultimately basically followed her to London, fl- uh, you know, flew on the next plane there, went to her house and somehow coerced her all all we know is that you know he he flew to london went to her house and by the time he exited her house he had the contract signed you know to quote hamilton no one else was in the room where it happened no one knows what ultimately convinced her he never revealed it she never revealed it they're both dead now saving mr banks speculated on what he said to her but there's no way to know for sure which which is kind of fascinating to me. Like if if I could be a fly on the wall at any point in history, my God. Yeah, there are some times in especially in Disney history, um, that I've always kind of wanted to to be in certain rooms. I think I think the last time we talked about this was when I was talking about the casting of Robbie Benson as the voice of the beast in <laughs> Beauty and the Beast. Like I wanted yeah, that, to be in that room when somebody's like, let's cast Robbie Benson as the voice of the beast. Like that. Let's cast a cute boyfriend from Full House as its ugly monster. Yeah. That must have taken some some doing to convince the executives of that. But uh but um, you know, he nailed it. He it was it was a yeah. great yeah. it's a great job ultimately. But um or, or um, I think the other, t- I think, I think uh, at the same time I, I mentioned the um, six foot, six foot two Australian musical theater actor as Wolverine uh, was the other one that I, yeah. that I really wanted to want to be in the room for. Well, that um, wasn't, that wasn't Disney at the time. It's yeah, I know. been acquired but, by uh, Disney in yeah. more ways than one, but, <laughs> but, but anyway. uh, you know, great, great moments in film history. But um, right. but yeah, be, be, being able to know what what was said to to convince P.L. Travers to turn over uh, Mary Poppins is is another one of those great uh, entertainment legends. Maybe, maybe he threatened her at knife point for all we know. <laughs> Who knows? But uh, wouldn't knows? you want to know that? Even yeah, if that'd, that'd be a fascinating. That Walt Disney just much, like picked up a kitchen knife and was like, "Listen, that'd be, that'd be a much better ending to save <laughs> Mr. Banks." <laughs> oh. I'll cut you, bitch! <laughs> yeah. Look, I mean, you don't yeah. actually know the power of the mouse, like no. <laughs> and yeah, as, as we said, Travers ended up hating the movie to her dying day, to the point where she put it like. She never worked with another American ever again. She put it in her will that no one who worked on this film would work on any other project uh, involving Mary Poppins. And then Disney made a deal with her, with her with her kids or or, or some or or with her estate. Even before, even before that, because we have to talk a little bit about the musical. 
the stage production. Right, 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 right. Yeah, the stage yeah. musical. Because Pre- Trevor's did sell her right, sell the Mary Poppins rights to a British playwright, who and then sold it to Disney after she died. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, there was that, but then also the, Disney was able to negotiate with P.L. Travers's estate because. You know, she was she was infamously not just difficult when it came to Disney. She was kind of all around difficult, even to the people she knew. And I, I think she had like an estranged. I I think she had didn't she have like an estranged stepdaughter or something or or an adopted. I, all I know is that she had an adopted son. An adopted son, right? Yeah, right. she adopted a son. Uh, Travers never married, but she did adopt a son. Right. Who. who had a very troubling relationship with her once he became an adult, because after yeah. he became an adult, he found out that he was adopted. Not only that, but he had a brother out there that mm. he never knew about, <laughs> which drove the wedge between uh, Travers and her son. Right. That right. lasted the rest of Travers's life. Yeah. You know, she was, uh, she, she was infamously not the easiest person to get along with just in, in general. So, I'm kind of not surprised that, you know, the executives are, that that her estate was a bit more malleable to to Disney's wishes as opposed to hers. Yeah. yeah. So let's and this movie did prime really well. I mean, we've got. Oh, yeah. We've got, you know, Julie Andrews, who won Best Actress. Mm-hmm. Tim Tim Turee, Oscar Award winning song. The, and the movie's nominated for Best Picture, of course. Yeah. And, uh, and and a bunch of other awards. Um, actually, my I'm getting back to Travis for just a moment. My favorite reaction that she had to everything that went on was at the premiere. And by the way, she she did famously cry at the premiere. Uh, not not tears of joy, by the way. But um, she uh, at at the after party, she confronted Walt and she said, "Well, I must admit, Julie Andrews was quite good as Mary Poppins." But Dick Van Dyke was all wrong as Burke. You'll have to start over. And Walt <laughs> just kind of chuckled and said, this is a premiere. That ship has sailed. The movie's Sorry. done. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. More, Goodbye. More directors in modern day need to learn that once the movie's premiered, the movie is done. Yep. No more editing. There is no more shooting. You the hear that, Zack Snyder? I was talking to George Lucas. Not oh, George. yeah. That's <laughs> That too. That too. Release belongs to us now. Yeah. Release the Travers cut. (laughs) Oh, the Travers cut, which is just a blank screen for two hours and nineteen minutes. (laughs) Oh, to be in the uh, to be in the alternate timeline. Let's let's get the watcher to take us to that timeline. Yeah. The Travers movie. Oh. The, I mean, um, she also famously hated animation. Oh yeah, yeah. You know that's that that's that, that's well known. Yeah, and and I'm not entirely sure, like, because I know they sold her on the Jolly Holiday sequence before telling her that it would be animated, and I think they made it sound like they were just entering a painting as opposed to entering a whole animated world, because she actually pitched a line that made it into the movie. And this is the kind of thing I'm talking about when I talk about her contributions to it. Uh, She pitched the line, don't fall and smudge the drawing. She, um, which is a clever line, and it was all hers, so. (laughs) The interesting thing is, is that although 
people do, and rightfully so, uh, mock uh, Dick Van Dyke and his Cockney accent, including Dick Van Dyke. Oh yeah, yeah. He, uh, he some of the he gives some of the best the jokes. Yeah, he some of the pop- best jokes about Dick Van Dyke's accent actually come from Dick Van Dyke. He personally um, apologized for it when he won the Lifetime Achievement BAFTA. He yeah. said, like, I, I appreciate this opportunity to apologize to the members of BAFTA for inflicting on them the most atrocious Cockney accent in the history of cinema. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I do dis- disagree with P.L. Travers uh, as Dick Van Dyke is uh, a treasure in all other ways. Absolutely. In this role. What makes it work is that, damn it, he commits to having the most atrocious Cockney accent in the history of cinema, and it becomes endearing in its own way. The whole film is a great example of something that I think Disney, I think especially in Walt Disney's heyday, absolutely did better than anyone, which was endearing artifice, is what I like to call it, is that you know it's fake and you don't care. It, the fakeness is the reason why you do it. It's kind of like being in Disneyland, you know, in its own way. It's like, you know that you walk around Disneyland, you know that nothing in it is real, except for maybe a few assorted birds who've flown in. But it's 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 all designed to entertain you. And that's the point. And, uh, you know, like like another great example of that. Every scene was filmed on the Disney Studio sound stages, even the exterior scenes, even the scenes when they're in the park or, you know, on the on the chimney tops. You know, those are all filmed indoors with with the studio technicians in control of all the elements. And you can kind of tell when you look closely, like when they're in the park, you know, you if you look closely, you can tell, oh, that's just a painted background. That's not mm-hmm. a real park back there. But, you know, it it. Like I said, it's that endearing artifice. It's that artificial dreamlike quality that enhances the fantasy element. And, it looks like um, a storybook. It does. It it looks like a storybook. And I think Dick Van Dyke's atrocious accent plays into that. And, you know, it it, it comes back around. And, you know, it, its awfulness circles back to being amazing. And you wouldn't want it to be art. You wouldn't want it to be accurate after a while. It's It's just so great as the atrocious accent that it is. And um, and incidentally, you were talking about Dick Van Dyke. Great as he is in this movie, he actually wasn't Walt's first choice. Walt's first choice to play Burt was Cary Grant, which mm. would have been interesting. His, his accent certainly would have been more accurate, though probably not as memorable. <laughs> well, and also he would have been just awful. Yeah, well... <laughs> I mean, in a musical... I, I could could Cary Grant even sing? I'm not sure. I don't, I, 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 it'd be like David Tomlinson singing, more or less. That Carol also, singing. Also, well, well, David David, Hom- David Tomlinson can sing just well. It, it can sing just fine. Do you think it would be like Rex Harrison or or like Fred McMurray in Happiest Millionaire, where he's basically just talking? Yeah, I don't know. Cary Grant, I, I, star. <laughs> I know that one of the other people they considered was Anthony Newley, which hmm. would have made you want to gouge your ears out <laughs> because although Anthony Newley did, was a singer and a songwriter, uh, Anthony Newley, I, I feel safe in saying had one of the worst voices ever. I'll throw off my sorrow, beg, 
steal or borrow my share of laughter with you. I, I mean, I, I don't know how familiar either of you are with Anthony I'm not, Newley, but I, I, I'm, it's not familiar, unfortunately. Uh, who, who, who is Anthony Newley? Um, he's he's a He's a songwriter, and he actually wrote that song, Feeling Good. And I'm feeling good. He uh, actually did, like, the, the film score to um, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And oh, so, okay. I mean, he's he's okay. brilliant. Got but... Gotcha, him, okay. But his his singing voice is not one of my favorites, and in fact is so distinctive, um, it became like a um a mystery science theater joke. When the Harlequin is on the pad. If you don't stop doing your Anthony Newley, I'm gonna throw you against the wall. Uh, that would have been a choice for sure. It would have right. been a choice. <laughs> but um the thing about the thing about Dick Van Dyke's um cockney accent is someone on set had to have told him of course because he was like the only American. Right. Well, and when yeah. Yeah, pretty um, much. Well, yeah, 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 him and but, Edwin were were pretty much the only Americans in the cast. But well, he says his his dialect coach was Jay Pat O'Malley, who was a Disney voice actor at the time. In fact, did a bunch of the voices in the Jolly Holiday sequence, and was also uh, the I, I think the voice of the Sheepdog in 101 Dalmatians, and uh, and Colonel Hathi in the Jungle Book, and one or two of the Vultures. And, you know, his Cockney act, I mean, he, I think, I'm pretty sure he's legitimately British, but he does have a very broad broad Cockney accent. So you can kind of hear how Dick Van Dyke is doing a J. Pat O'Malley impression, but it's still, but, but, but his Cockney accent is so broad that if you remove it one degree, it kind of goes off the rails. And it clearly did with Dick Van Dyke. Since we're since we're talking about actors, let's just let's just uh kind of run down the list, um because sure, sure. we do we do just everybody in this is a, a straight up star. Oh yeah. Um, we of course have uh Julie Andrews and Nick Van Dyke who are just legends. Uh, I I'm we can't really say anything about them because they're legends. If you don't know them, you've you're living in a different universe. Well, uh, well welcome to well, this one. <laughs> well, I do have a few things to say about Julie Andrews. Uh, this was her very first film role in anything, which is hard to believe because she absolutely nailed it. I mean, she was a star of the Broadway stage for many years by this point, of course. But film acting is a whole other ball game. But she transitioned seamlessly. And famously, this is a famous story, she was only able to do this movie because Jack Warner, in his infinite wisdom, cast Audrey Hepburn instead of Julie Andrews as Eliza Doolittle in the film version of My Fair Lady, even though Which Andrews... came out the same year. Yeah, came out the same year, and Andrews had played Eliza Doolittle brilliantly on Broadway, but for some reason Jack Warner's like, nah, she's not famous, Audrey Hepburn's famous, let's cast Audrey Hepburn. Later on at the Oscars that year... Uh, Julie Andrews and Audrey Hepburn were up against each other for Best Actress, and Julie Andrews won. 
And in her acceptance speech, you know, she's thanking her husband, thanking her manager, blah, blah, blah. And she ends with, Finally, my thanks to a man who made a wonderful movie and who made all this possible in the first place, Mr. Jack Warner. Throwing shade like nobody's business. (laughs) And, of course, the person who it worked out really well for, Marnie Nixon. Oh, yeah. Got work in both films because she got to be the voiceover for Audrey Hepburn, who could not sing the role. And right. then, of course, she got to be all the the geese and random stuff in the animated sequence right, for Jolly right, Holiday right. in this one. So, <laughs> My favorite thing about all of that is that eventually they did the Julie Andrews variety show. And there's mm. this famous skit where it's Julie Andrews. Right, right. Eliza Doolittle and Mary Poppins. Oh, Eliza, let's not start that again. Well, what can she do for you when I can't? I taught her Cockney. I taught her to fly. I made her a stage star. I made her a movie star. But um, had Julie Andrews not gotten this part, um, they would have probably cast either Haley Mills or Mary Martin, who could have done their own singing. So, again, it would have worked out bad for Martin Nixon. So. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> So for the sake of Marnie Nixon, let's be glad it worked out the way it did, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, but uh, yeah. Um, so we've we've talked about David Tomlinson before. Bedknobs uh, and broomsticks, yeah. Yeah, when yeah. we talked about bedknobs and broomsticks, of course. Uh, as Mrs. Banks, we we got uh, Glennis Johns. Glennis Johns, yes, absolute uh, legend. Who uh was a Broadway legend before doing this role uh Mm -hmm. she originated the role in little night music and uh brought the song send in the clowns to the uh, to the thing and now that uh olivia de Havilland has left us in 2020 glennis johns is now the oldest living academy award nominee for any acting category yeah oh wow Uh, as of this recording glennis johns is still with us uh, knock on some wood somewhere. I mean, she retired many years ago, right? Oh like, yeah, like, her her I, last acting role to date was in uh, 1999 in um, the the SNL film Superstar. Superstar, that's where I thought you were going. Yeah, yeah, it's that, um, amazing that, that that was her final role in such a yeah. Movie, she but. she retired after that, uh, weirdly enough. Did that movie drive her to retire? I wonder. <laughs> I have no idea if that drove her to retirement, but that is currently her. her like, forget uh, this bullshit. Promo. As as the the two uh, children, uh, we have uh, M- Matthew Garber as Michael Banks. Right. Uh, he only did three films in his career. Yeah, he was kind of the James Dean of child actors, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, this was by far the biggest one. The other two were The Three Lives of Thomasina and The Gnome Mobile. The Gnome Mobile, classic, yes. Yeah. With her- also also starring Ed Wynn. <laughs> and, and, and I believe, wasn't Karen Dotris the other kid in The Gnome Mobile as well? I was going to say that because she's also in Thomasina too. I think all right, three of right. his films with, with the same co-star. Right, yeah. right, absolutely. Um. But uh, he uh, unfortunately uh, died at yeah, 20 yeah. years old. Mm, very um, so he, he died very young um, and he was uh, named a Disney legend posthumously in 2004. Um, 
the thing is, is that uh, despite um, appearing in all three of his films with him, uh, Karen Daughtry's uh, lost touch with him before mm-hmm. his his death. And uh, she said that she always kind of regretted that. But uh, yeah, like like we said, uh, the the other of the children in the movie is uh, Karen Dottris, who, as of this recording, still with us. She is 65 uh, currently. Um, Had a very brief cameo in Mary Poppins Returns as as a as like a passerby on the street or something. Yeah, um, elegant lady on Cherry Tree Lane is her mm-hmm. official. That's uh, right. She still appears every now and then in things. She um, pop pops in now and again. I, I don't. She's not officially an actress still. She she's retired from um, acting, but she does um, some voice work now and then. She did. Um, audiobook for a George R. R. Martin um, because her family and George R. R. Martin are very close um, if you didn't know that um, but uh, she is the the daughter of Roy Dotris the the actor um, who I actually did not know that for a long time uh, I am a huge fan of her father uh, for his work on the uh, Beauty and the Beast television series, no relation hmm. to Disney, although they may own it now. <laughs> is that the one with um, uh, Ron Perlman? It is the one with Ron okay. Perlman, uh, and it was written by George R. R. Martin, which of is course, yes. which is why they are they have been such good friends. Um, but uh, yeah, so. Um, she was uh, also uh, Karen was also named a Disney legend in 2004 along with her her co-star. Um, so uh, she continues to work uh, for Disney every now and then and do public appearances related to Mary Poppins. Um, interestingly, her um, her godmother is uh, also in the film. Who did her she godmother was the uh, the actress Elsa Lancaster. Oh, okay. Uh, she she so, was one of the. She was the cook, wasn't she? Or, Katie um, Nana. Oh, she was Katie Nana. Okay. Yeah, she was Katie Nana that uh, retires at the beginning. Um, but uh, since we just talked about uh, all things Frankenstein last week, you may remember that Elsa Lancaster is best known as uh, the title character in Bride of Frankenstein, right, the right, 1935 right. film. Um, but uh, then she she later uh, did a lot of uh, Disney films, including um, Mary Poppins, and then she showed up in uh, That Darn Cat and Blackbeard's Go- uh, Blackbeard's Ghost and... Uh, few other things so and speaking of people who are in just a bunch of disney movies we should probably also talk about edwin as yeah, Uncle Albert. a few times but yeah but a disney legend edwin we have talked about quite a lot on this show mm-hmm. most um, of the uh, mad hatter of course and uh, you know fire chief and absent-minded professor the toy maker in babes in toyland yeah. that darn cat no mobile and uh, and of course uncle albert who um yeah. 
by the way, in in the Uncle Albert sequence in this movie, he's he's tripping balls, right? Like he's I I feel like at some point at least he the, literally got high. Yeah, literally. I feel like at one point maybe that was meant as a direct metaphor for quite literally getting high or at the very least getting drunk. But oh, another siren. To find those particular jokes funny, you have to be high on something. Absolutely. Because even as a kid, I was like, these aren't funny jokes. It's dad jokes, you know? It's just it's just. I'm not even sure they're dad jokes. They're just like. <laughs> but they're, yeah. They're jo- they're joke book jokes. Yeah. Um, other other kind of Disney uh, regulars we've talked about before on the show uh, that uh, show up in this is uh, Betty Lou Gerson shows up at one point, uncredited, of course, uh, as uh, an old crone. Uh, so we've uh, you remember her as the uh, voice of Cruella de Vil. Uh, in the original 101 Dalmatians. Uh, we've got among the voice cast that shows up in the Jolly Holiday segment, we've got the legendary Dawes Butler, uh, <laughs> more more known for his work with Hanna-Barbera than Disney, okay. but uh, shows up here, of course. Uh, Paul Freese, who we've talked about before, Alan Napier, Marnie Nixon, as we discussed, Thurl Ravenscroft, um, Robert Sherman, as I said, you, you know, yeah. and the Sherman brothers themselves. Can yeah, I do a little voice um, cameo in here. You know, Robert and Richard Sherman. Yeah, of course. And uh, then, of course, uh, David Tomlinson does uh, double duty, um, including the voice of uh, Mary Poppins' umbrella. Huh. Well, Dick Van Dyke also plays another role in this movie. Of course. Yeah, yeah we should we, get into that. <laughs> We do have as, to mention that. As Dick Van Dyke, um, as Dick Van Dyke said on the special features of the DVD, he said, "I used to love playing old men, and now I have no choice." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, yeah, now now Walt um, Walt really did want ultimately want to cast Dick Van Dyke as Bert. But it took a lot of coaxing to get him to let Dick Van Dyke play the old man as well. I think Dick Van Dyke had to make a contribution to Cal Arts, which which Walt co-founded before he'd let him do that. And uh, and it worked, but it works brilliantly. And when I was a kid, at the end of the credits, when the letters on on his credit are all jumbled and they end up spelling Dick Van Dyke, that blew my mind when I was a kid. That Daft Kid Keed. Yes. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and I could swear when the letters are getting jumbled for like a frame, they spell out Da Vinci. <laughs> <laughs> the uh they the interesting thing is is that of course, you know, then then when they did Mary Poppins Returns Yeah, yeah. He basically did the same thing again, except they just didn't need to put old man makeup on him. Right, absolutely. And and, you know, uh, well, you know, Bert in the movie, I always thought it was weird that he had a different job every day. But now as an adult, I realize he just predicted the gig economy. Yeah. <laughs> like one day he's a street musician. The next day he's a screever. The next day he's the elderly chairman of the Bank of England. The next day he's <laughs> the chimney sweep. You know, the damn gig economy. I'm telling you. Yeah. 
do we do we want to talk about next day he's driving for grubhub you know (laughs) yes if they'd had grubhub at the turn of the the 1900s um tim tindery tim tindery tim tim taru i will (laughs) deliver your dinner up to you yeah uh british food ain't worth it british food ain't worth delivery you'd rather starve Let's kind of just talk about our our favorite parts of the the plot here. Yeah, this is a two and a half hour movie. <laughs> Let's just, uh, I mean, everyone and their mother has seen this movie, so we don't yeah, really have to go beat by beat. We're not, not hand holding you through the 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 plot, but let's kind of talk about our our favorite bits of it. Um, I I do want to say one thing is that, uh, the votes for women song has gotten really popular over the last few years and i don't know why i have no idea why this song no, about women's empowerment a, would get all. so much po- popular among women over the last couple of years you know no clue you know what what i find interesting about the structure of the songs in this film overall is that this is one of the most revered and celebrated movie musicals of all time but very atypical for a musical, it doesn't really have a big opening number. Unless you count Bert as the one-man band just kind of, you know, dicking around with the townsfolk. But it, do- but that didn't even make it to the soundtrack album. It's just kind of a pre-reprise of Chim Chim Cheree, a pre-prise, if you will. That and And that demonstrated tremendous courage, I think, on Walt's part. Like, he knew you didn't have to open big with a flashy musical number. You know, and certainly he didn't. In fact, it's a little more interesting if this film just entices you a little more subtly at first and you save the bigger stuff for later on. And, um, and, and, you know, when you finally do get your first proper musical number, it's Sister Suffragette, which barely has anything to do with the rest of the movie. It doesn't happen until nine minutes in. It barely has anything to do with the rest of the movie. It comes to an it, it it's such a kind of whiff of a song that it comes to an abrupt end without even properly finishing. And in fact, it was only written and added to the movie because Glynis Johns didn't want to do the movie unless they gave her her own song. They she wanted Fair. at least she she was a Broadway star. She wanted at least one song of her own in the movie, and that ended up being Sister Suffragette, which was kind of so it was just kind of this tossed off thing. But it is the first proper song in the movie and that just kind of goes to show you know how how confident walt was in this thing that that they didn't need to they didn't need to open big they didn't even really need to close big because let's go fly a kite is not the biggest song even in this movie that you know the movie's a bit of a contradiction because like i said it's one of the most beloved musicals of all time but it has surprising when you actually watch it it has surprisingly little it, it has surprisingly little bombast i guess is the word for it or rather it saves its bombast for moments when they'll have the most impact like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious or step in time you know and so many of the iconic moments in this movie are presented much more casually and cavalierly and without a lot of fanfare and very matter of factly uh, more so than we remember because often that was just Walt's aesthetic preference. And at the time, it was his studio. He called all the shots. And that, I think, was one of the big things that Mary Poppins Returns got wrong. That movie is almost nothing but bombast. It's almost nothing but P. 
people announcing, you know, how big and important. Oh my God, Mary Poppins has Mary Poppins has returned. We gotta make a big deal out of this, out of like every last musical number. Uh, and everyone seems to know they're in this big important movie. Honestly, come to think of it, not unlike the difference between the original Star Wars and The Force Awakens, or the Muppet movie and Muppets 2011. I guess that was the big trend in 2010's Disney movies, just acquire or or remake all the biggest movies of all time and just make them bigger and assume that's automatically the same thing as better. <laughs> I think it's more of how you remember the movie versus what the movie actually was. I think that's yeah, what they were trying to... Yeah, it absolutely is. I will say something, though, is that there are, what, three songs, I think, in the movie before you would get to one that the that anybody but, like... <laughs> a hardcore Disney fan would remember. Uh, I, I Well, I think two songs, because it's Sister Suffragette and then the Life I Live. Oh, yeah, oh yeah, you're right. Three and songs, then like the, the, and the, then the, the perfect nanny, nanny song that the, the, the children's song it's saying. Yeah. So there's like technically three songs, and then eventually Mary Poppins shows up and sings Spoonful of Sugar. Right. And that's kind of the first one that shows up in the movie that anybody that's not like a really hardcore Disney fan would even be able to sing to you. Yeah, and um, and I, I, and I, I what I... what's the first song in Muppet movie? Uh, Rainbow, Rainbow Connection. Connection. Exactly, yes. which almost anybody could sing to. So I you mean, gotta... it's a little bit different. For, um, and even even compared to other Disney movies, what's the first song in Pinocchio? When you wish upon a star, you know. Yeah, it's it's you know, so it's it's slightly different. I, I would I would argue it it does take a bit to get started. It's been a while since I've seen this film, mm-hmm. and I forgot how much of this film there is before you actually get to the point of this freaking movie. <laughs> it it's very confidently paced, like it knows. Yeah. It's a movie that absolutely knows it's going to deliver the goods, and so it can take its sweet time getting there with the knowledge that the the that everything that's happening in the meantime is still charming enough that you won't drop out, that you won't, you know, get bored yeah, with I'm it. Not, I'm not hating on it. I'm not saying, like, I fell asleep watching this movie because I forgot how boring it was. Not that at all. It's not boring at all, but... even th- even though it's long for a Disney movie. But I am, but I was kind of shocked at how I had forgotten how much of the movie exists before you ever get to the point of the movie. Right, right. You know, it it does. Before the main character shows up, up, as it were. Yeah, it does set up what this family's life is like before Mary Poppins gets there. And yes, why she needs which to is, there. Which is yeah, very important. Yeah. Which is important to the plot, you know, and, and you're right, it is confident to show you why Mary Poppins needed to show up. That the children are unhappy the way that Banks treats Mrs. Banks, which I think is something that is left slightly unaddressed by the end of the movie. I mean, I I feel like... I feel like they just didn't consider that the focus... Like, like Let's it's more just Im- say there's a reason Mrs. Banks is out there sh- getting involved in the suffragette movement. Like- well, by, well, by the end of the movie, she's not afraid to show it off anymore. You know, she makes the 
votes for women, you know, sash the tail of the kite. And, you know, you know, so she's kind of advertising the message out there, you know, up in the sky, I guess could be argued. Or you could or you could just as easily argue, you know, she's throwing that shit to the wind or, or something, yeah. you know, which I is mean, not which yeah. is not as great a message. But yeah, I mean, this movie does make Mrs. Banks's uh, role as a activist almost a bad thing. Like she's so busy being an activist, she can't be there for her kids. It does kind of turn it into a joke, which is which is not the not the optimum way to go about it. But, you know, it's it's what felt right at the time and you know some activists are kind of flighty like that i'm sorry you know i know i I see it as their causes would be you know i was thinking more in the fact of um mr banks did not only need to learn to maybe be a father to his children but maybe a husband to his wife sure sure and uh, and and you're right that that part of it does kind of go unaddressed but yeah. You know, like like I said, I didn't think I, I certainly don't think Walt considered that the more important part of the story. I think. Gee, I wonder why. Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> but, I also see this as this is what the kids see. Like, right, we're seeing right. this life from their perspective. This may not be exactly 100 percent how it was from the parents perspective, but we're seeing their life from the kids eyes. So in the kids eyes, too. the dad is too busy with work to care for them the mom is too busy fighting for other people's rights to take care of them well you know i mentioned this in my um haunted mansion movie review but david tomlinson as mr banks was kind of the progenitor of that 90s trend of building every damn movie around a dad who doesn't have time for his kids but what makes it work here is that he's actually an abusive asshole. He's not just some likable comedian who isn't spending every waking moment with his damn wiener kids. He actually has a meaningful arc in this uh, from, uh, you know, from just from treating his kids like nuisances and bothersome things that he has to put up with to actually coming around to loving them and, and appreciating them. And, uh, and, and, you know, I love the the upper-class, stuffy Britishisms of his performance. You know, like, of course the children are here. Where else would they be? And, you know, Winifred, don't be emotional, that sort of thing. Well, I do think a lot of it comes down to the perfect nanny song. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the differences between not not only the way he thinks that the children should be raised but the way that the mother and the children think that the children should be raised right right um and it and it shows not only his particular um not only disinterest in the children but his um like societal view right yeah of, children in in general and the raising of children which goes along to his work at the bank Mm -hmm. and then you see it mirrored again in the bank song how how they treat um you know the the money and the way that um the the english uh system was going on and that the empire was going on at the time and you see it mirrored in his children which i actually really liked in the lyrical content it's a little deeper 
there, which is points to the Sherman brothers. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I mean, by the way, you know, what does it say about about the British, you know, economy that one, you know, that one of the great satires of the movie is one child, you know, trying to give the smallest amount of money to a homeless person sets off a chain reaction that brings the Bank of England to its knees on par with the Boston Tea Party. You know, it. I, I guess it's a commentary on how impactful kindness can be when weaponized. <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, I just love the fact that, you know, Michael starts a riot. Yeah. Unintentionally, but he starts a riot. He does. And, uh, and, and you know, an- another great, Another great kind of subtle satire of the movie is in the song Fidelity Fiduciary Bank, you know, just all the financial jargon that they're spouting off. It comes across to the children and especially to the audience as pure gibberish. It comes across as more gibberish than supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Yeah, I I like especially that while Michael is just confused, as Michael is throughout the movie because yeah. I hate to say this about he a darling sweet confused. child. He gives confused he gives great confused face. Sorry. Yeah, but you get the sense that throughout the film Michael may have a skull full of pudding. <laughs> like it just kind of no matter what happens around him He's a child. He he kind of face. just looks at everything as if he has no sense of what's going on. Jane, on the other hand, constantly looks like she's taking everything in. Yeah, but at yeah. certain points, especially in the bank, as the old men are singing to them, Jane has the most wonderful look, which I have always loved. As if she immediately clocks that this is a scam and her <laughs> father is in the middle of a pyramid scheme. Yep. <laughs> and she has now lost all confidence in her father and is about to turn him into, like, the cops. <laughs> like, she looks like she is about to leave there and call the fraud department. Like... <laughs> Which I love. Like it, it, this is a girl who is a who has just clocked. Capitalism is a lie. Yeah. Money is a social construct. Absolutely. I am joining a commune. <laughs> like when when falls the Bank of England, England falls, <laughs> and old Dick Van Dyke falls over. That is a girl who is walking out of that bank and heading to a coffee shop and reading March. Joining the revolution. (laughs) Joining just, she she was radicalized at that moment. Yeah, which I Hey, mom, do you have an extra sash I could borrow? (laughs) (laughs) And meanwhile, you know, Mr., Mr. Banks just has the biggest, you know, dumb dumb fucking exuberant enraptured look on his face just singing plantations of ripening tea it's like and and meanwhile his daughter's like are you high are you in a cult or something what is this also the fact that these children are being cornered by a bunch of grown men yes yes very very predatory you know predatory banking as it were yeah, I love that Mr. Over, Mr. Over tuppence. 
yeah, Mr. Dawes is so greedy that he will yep. pry tuppence from a child's hand. At one point, he he says, you know, he excitedly says, think of the foreclosures, you know, fuck it, 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 which is the banality of evil right there. You know, it's which the fact that they made that a plot point in Mary Poppins Returns. Yeah. Yeah. They, you they know, made, they made too big a deal of it in Mary Poppins Returns, I thought. But that was the only part of Mary Poppins Returns I liked other than getting to see more Lin-Manuel Miranda. Well, Michael Tuppence somehow ballooned into a large sum of wealth that they can somehow pay off their loans. I I have my own thoughts on the end of Mary Poppins Returns, but you know we're not talking about that movie yeah. at the moment. I, yeah. I, I, the short version is I kind of objected to the idea that they thought a Mary Poppins movie had to have a plot, which because you know, this movie kind of doesn't. In it, you know it, it 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 it's a series of set pieces that don't really have that much to do with each other, but damn it, they all work, and they all work together. But they do all come together at the end. They do, ultimately. Yeah. You know? I Since we're just talking about it, it's, it's a movie of set pieces, I want to talk about my least favorite set piece that has my most favorite conceit. Mm-hmm. Okay, the Jolly Holiday set piece, because... Much like P.L. Travers, I absolutely loathe this whole sequence. Really? But I absolutely love the fact that Mary Poppins can skadoo. I am too much of a Blue's Clues fan not to love that Mary Poppins can skadoo. Blue's skadoo, we can too. (laughs) You You really hate this scene? Okay, I... We talked about this in Bedknobs and Broomsticks when we did it. I get really bored when it's just like, let's grind the movie to a halt to go, look, we can do live action people, but also there's animation. Look at the technology we can do. Isn't this cute, kitties? Let's put a musical number here. Let's put two musical it's numbers. Charming. In it's 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 fun. Come on. It's I fun. I mean, I, I don't I, like I, charming. Charming. Charm. Uh, oh, poo. A, I, I'm a, a depressed goth kid. What do you want from me? This I don't mind it. I think that some of the dance sequences go a bit long. I I like Dick but. Van Dyke dancing with penguins because <laughs> yeah. Dick Van Dyke dancing will never not be awesome to me. Like, just that, please. Okay. Um, But I don't know. I don't need to see Mary Poppins and Bert go on a date. It's not a date. They literally do a verse of Jolly Holiday about how Bert's perfectly happy being friend-zoned. That's what I don't like about it. Like, if you're going to have Mary Poppins and Bert go on a date, like, have them go on a date. You know? That was a thing Travis Feel put down in yeah, yeah. <laughs> She did not Absolutely. want Mary Poppins to have any kind of romantic relationship. So that was a that was part of the deal. So they had to make they had to write an entire song to show the audience that Bert and Mary are just friends. Yep. Or at least a, a verse of a song. Mm-hmm. I, I'm glad that apparently Bert gets his on the side because apparently that that's a whole list of what he gets yeah. up to when Mary's not around, 
which apparently, like, Mary Poppins is mad at, which, like, yeah, if you're not interested, that? let him go get his. Come on. Yeah, absolutely. Which, by the way, uh, Dick Van Dyke's little patter bit about all the girls he dates, I am convinced was the inspiration for Washington on your side from Hamilton. Mavis and Sybil have ways that are winning, and Toots and Gwendolyn sets her out spinning. Phoebe's delightful, Maud is disarming. Janice? Felicia? Lydia? Charming. I'm in the cabinet, I am complicit in watching him grabbing and power and kissing. If Washington isn't gonna listen to discipline, dissident, this is the difference, this kid is out. That's why they cast Lin-Manuel in, in Returns. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Lin-Manuel has pulled from weirder parts for definitely so you're saying so you're saying eminem doesn't want to have a rap battle with dick van dyke oh i that that would be amazing (laughs) yeah um but i don't know it just goes on way too long and then they're like in a fox hunt and on a horse ray and like go do something more interesting (laughs) oh i like it all it's you know I, I like but that. But then it's just we a... get super califragilistic, and then I'm like, yes. okay, this is an interesting song and an interesting dance sequence. And then you've got Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke dancing together, and there's interesting rhyming and wordplay, and it's a cool song. And like that saves the sequence again, but like, oh, just. I don't I know. Li- I like the animation. I like the fox hunt. I like I, I, I also just really like classic hand-drawn disney animation like done by the nine old men like you, you know well, they, so do they... I. I love animation i even like the technology i just want it to be put to better you like do something interesting with it it's just i think I this know. is better i mean it's definitely more entertaining than than the scene in in bed now bed- sticks it is I like that too but i feel mm, this I think so many people put so much emphasis on the animated scene that Disney tried to redo it over and over again. Again, they did it in Bed Knobs and Broomsticks. They made an animated, made a, a full animated character be a centerpiece for Peach Dragon. The 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 ink the you know they wouldn't even they wouldn't even perfect it until we get to Roger Rabbit. Right. Yeah. Well, that was partly just the the technology and and the relative ambition. You know, it, it took a. A, a crazy person like Richard Williams to say, no, actually we should move the camera when, when animation's on screen. But, but um, in, but in, in Roger Rabbit, it's just the plot. Now there's plot going on. We don't grind the movie to a halt to see, just be like, look, it's twee. Look, what I love, what colors. I love about Mary Poppins is that, it's even when the plot is being ground to a halt just for this animated sequence, it's so goddamn charming that at least I don't mind. To be sure, own, I say. Yeah. But, yeah. uh, I mean, if, if you like this sequence, fine. This is always the part of the movie where I get up and go get a snack. Like, <laughs> well, I, I'd also like to point out, um, now, some of the character designs, I feel, were left over from 101 Dalmatians. Like, like definitely some of the farm animals looked like they were also in, in Dalmatians. And, and then there's a shot with, with what looks like the squirrel from Sword in the Stone. 
Um, so there's some reused designs, but I don't think there's any reused animation in this scene, which which is interesting because Disney reused a lot of animation. You can go on YouTube and find like shots they reused in movies like Jungle Book and Robin Hood around this, this era. This does not look like the Xerox animation. I think that was at the time. Well, it is Xerox animation, though, and, and and you can tell if you really look at it closely. But the um, but you know, I I attribute that uh, the the that there's no reused animation to this being kind of a stopgap project in between Sword in the Stone and the Jungle Book, and they generally only reused animation on features where they had to produce a lot more animation in less amount of time. Also, I think that Disney threw a lot of money at this because he wanted this to be oh, his absolutely. jewel. Absolutely. And yeah, there, they, re- they really project, only you know? cut was... corners with the Xerox when they were trying to save money. Yeah. You really want Walt Disney to to go cheap on a project he promised his kids he would do? Yeah. Um, I, on the other hand, let's talk about uh my favorite song and apparently waltz uh feed the birds yeah, oh, yeah. Feed the birds that's, um that that's uh that's a uh a, a bit of a tearjerker for me i'll be i'll admit it famously waltz favorite song and it's easy to see why it's such a quintessential example of bittersweet it's a song about how you know the smallest act of kindness mean uh, the smallest acts of kindness mean the most and it's a very dark song when you get down to it about this poor homeless woman who has nothing and just relies on people buying bags of crumbs to feed the birds. And it, like, like you could totally picture Tom Waits covering this song, you know, like because he did all the songs about, you know, the the, the dregs of society you know, feed the birds. Yeah. Early each day to the steps of St. Paul. I've always wanted to hear Tom Waits cover this. I think it would be awesome. But but also it's weirdly uplifting in its own way. Like Mary Poppins is the type to see the glory in the most seemingly insignificant people and gestures. And it and it just works so well. And I, and the and the effect with the snow globe and the birds flying around which which I feel like was similar to the technology Hitchcock would use a year later for the birds. I, I'd love a crossover between, like, like, just play Feed the Birds over scenes from Hitchcock's The Birds. Feed, that feed the, the birds. birds. Feed the birds. Yeah, or else. <laughs> yes. Now, now, now. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's, it, it, you know, this old homeless woman has nothing. Yeah, but it's like. Right. This one thing, this one act of kindness that anyone could do is going to bring her joy. And, right, yeah. You know, and Michael wants to do it. I, you know, he wants to feed the birds. And then you have, you know, Mr. Banks saying, yeah, we're not going to do that. You know, why are you going to give this old home, homeless woman your money and uh, feed some birds? And, I, and you know, the line in, in, in the bank, what do you get when you feed birds? You get fat birds. Fat birds, yeah. <laughs> Which... Might as well be the uh the tagline for the Republican Party at this sure. point. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um the the more interesting thing of this sequence though is who that woman is in the Jane film. Jane Darwell, right. Jane um, Darwell. Um in her in her final film role and 
She did not want to do it. Uh, Walt had to go personally and convince her because she was in the uh, the motion picture and television retirement home, basically. Right, right. Um, and she was basically uh, on on her deathbed yeah, almost. She- she hadn't worked in five years at that point. Um, obvi- obviously, best known for playing Ma Jode in *The Grapes of Wrath*, and which which I think she got an Oscar for. She, she, she? did. She she won yeah. the the Oscar for best supporting actress. Um, and I she don't. Was, she was exactly, Mrs. Merriweather in *Gone with the Wind*. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't exactly know why Walt was so intent um you know walt was the kind of guy who just got an idea in his head and wouldn't let go of it you know he 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 was very he just saw it it was just instinctual he saw jane darwell as this as the bird woman yeah i guess he just you know closed his eyes at one point and this picture came in his brain and he was like nope gotta be her and, and by she, the way, and by the way, I'm convinced that she was the inspiration for the Bird Woman in Home Alone 2. She was. They have yeah. confirmed that. Um, that that was what they were thinking of when they when they did it. They wanted Kevin to have that same kind of moment. Right. Um. So they they styled her to look very similar and and everything, but um. But yeah. So Walt brought. Jane Darwell out of retirement to do this one thing and um she did and it was her her final screen role yeah uh before before she uh yeah, passed. She, passed, she passed just a few years later yeah but yeah I I love I love the the song I love the the idea of you know t- tiny moments of charity and generosity and and then of course the the juxtaposition right after with the just intense greed of the bank yeah um and how easily the bank run is caused you know like yeah. you, like you said you know just the the twitchiness of they see one little boy saying no give me my money money," and it immediately causes a run on the bank bank and um which is something i'm not even sure i did not understand what was going on when i watched this as a child yeah me neither i i it just got the sense that something um that's well well, i kind of understood what was going on I, i i got the sense that you know, every when everyone asks for their money at once, you know, the bank can't handle it. And they and and I, I didn't know it was called a run at the time, but, you know. Well, this and It's a Wonderful Life when they're they're talking mm-hmm. about there might be a run on the bank. And I, I was asking, like, well, what's what's a run on the bank? And they were like, well, it's when everybody asks the bank for their money at the same time. And I was like, well, why would that be a problem? Just give them their money and they're like well the bank doesn't have enough yeah, money for that, everybody and i was like, well, like why I wouldn't s- they 
like we said, it's all a scam. Money. It's all a scam, folks. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and as a little child, that made no sense to me. I'm like, well, if I give the bank my $5, they put it in the vault. So when I go, they give me, and they're like, no, they loan it out to other people, but they, they loan out way too much. So they never have your $5. So like if everybody asks for their $5 back, they don't have it. And I'm like, I feel, I feel they like if we give out money that they don't have and they're like, yeah. And I'm like, but if I do that, they send me to jail. And they're like, yes, they would. And I'm like, so why don't we send the banks to jail? And they're like, <laughs> because we don't. And I'm like, because they control us. Stupid. <laughs> because they own us all. That's I. And if you go. And if you go far enough with this line of reasoning, you eventually get the big short. <laughs> Tell me, Kiki, when did you get radicalized? I think it was <laughs> when I watched Mary Poppins as a little child. Yep. It's... So Mary worked on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. But the point here is with, with Mary is like, uh, uh, again, I saw a little bit of Saving Mr. Banks is that a lot of people think Mary is there for the children. Right. And she's not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, she's, she's there, there for, for Mr. Banks. Mm-hmm. She's Everything there to that... teach Mr. Banks why working for a bank is wrong. Unfortunately, it backfires. Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, after he assassinates an old man. Yeah, with... after yeah, the the old man's kid is like, hey, thanks for killing my dad. Now I get my inheritance earlier. Here, have a new job. It's the perfect crime. They'll never trace it back to us. No one ever suspects the laughter. Yeah. <laughs> and she leaves town as soon as it happens. So no yeah, one ever she's, she's like, fuck it. She's like, screw this. I'm out. <laughs> yeah. One of the most interesting things to me is like Mary comes in and she does. She does this. Um, They really go into this when they do Mary Poppins returns like they mm. they go hardcore on it when but like Mary comes into the children's lives and the first thing she does is she teaches them that you can snap your fingers and your room will clean itself which is maybe not the best thing to teach children maybe not but you know if but if um, you're having fun cleaning is a snap yeah, exactly. I will respect this film in the fact that it has an entire song about why vaccination is awesome. Yes. Yeah, the in, fact inspired, that the song was inspired by a vaccine. Yeah, absolutely inspired by the polio vaccine, uh, which at that time was administered to kids in the form of a sugar cube, and and of course that inspired uh, you know Robert Sherman's son had the sugar cube uh, in uh, happen at, at school. And um, and that inspired the song. And that was actually one of the later additions to the movie. That's another thing Saving Mr. Banks got wrong is is um, they would not have come up with that song that early. Uh, They actually originally had written another ballad at that moment called The Eyes of Love. You'll see your castles rise through the eyes. Which 
Mary Poppins singing two ballads in the movie already kind of seems like pushing it. I don't know why they thought a third one was a good idea. And apparently Julie Andrews felt the same way because she was the one who really pushed for this one at this moment being peppier. And, um, and, and you was, know, there, as the, there, was, there was the song Practically Perfect, which was supposed to go here. Oh, right. Which eventually right. Went, on, went on to the being in the stage production. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, there was there was that too. But also, um, but also, as they pointed out in Saving Mr. Banks, you know, it speaks to Mary Poppins' character that she goes up on the word down. You know, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. You know, you you go up on that word. Yeah, because yeah. up the banister. She slides up the banister. She, she slides up the banister. She sings and she sings a lullaby called "Stay Awake." You know, that's who Mary Poppins is. And but that's one thing Travers did like about it, especially was the song Stay Awake, because that's yes. something Mary would do. Yeah, Stay Awake, like, she was very critical of the songs used in the movie. Stay Awake was the one song she absolutely insisted stay in the movie, because Walt was considering cutting that, because I think I, I think he was dealing with the three ballad dilemma before they cut the Eyes of Love as well. And uh, and he was like, yeah, maybe we'll cut Stay Awake. And she's like, no, that's that's the one song you've gotten right. That's perfect to her character. You're you're not. There's no way you're cutting that. Yeah, I I the one thing that I kind of I don't know whether to love or hate about Mary's character is the fact that like she does all of this stuff where it's just. She goes out and she does all of this obvious magic. And then the children's mm-hmm. like, wow, you're magic. And she's like, nope. Let's just let's just call it what it is. Let's just call it what it is. She's a gaslighter. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, <laughs> well, and little ca- Billy. And I kind of love that, honestly. But yeah, it's like, well, little Billy, what's your favorite part of Mary Poppins? I like the part where she gaslights two little children for a really <laughs> long time. <laughs> we went into the painting. No, we didn't. <laughs> and, you know, how did you put the idea in father's head? Me putting ideas in people's heads? The impertinence. You know, she's she's the ultimate troll. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think, again, they kind of touched this in Mary Palmer's Returns, is that she kind of does her job and kind of wants to be forgotten afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's kind of her place to come into people's lives and, and make them better and then just skedaddle. But, you know, her umbrella calls her out on it, you know, because yeah, as she's as... leaving at the end, her umbrella is like, you know, that you're absolutely enamored with these two children. And she's like, shut up or I'll put you there a wood chipper, you know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> But I do oh. love that line at the end where she says, who would I be if I loved every kid I left? Yeah. And there are so many people in the childcare industry, whether you're you know, in childcare or uh, teaching young children, that can resonate with that because a lot of them do. Absolutely. And, um, and by the way, I mentioned this film has a bit of everything. Like, you know, obviously it's got the animated sequence. The, uh, the spoonful of sugar sequence has you know, stop motion elements and even the animatronic bird, which, you know, the Imagineers had been developing for the Enchanted Tiki Room at the time. And there, and then at the end with the talking umbrella, puppetry. 
it's like this movie has a little of everything. It's like it's it's a smorgasbord of, of film techniques. And there's so much wire work in this. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that they're constantly, you know, flying actors in and out of, of places. And, Especially you the know. Uh, I love to laugh scene. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's the big flying. That and Jolly Holiday. Those are the two big, yeah. you know, people. But even in, wires. like. There's so much of it in um, Step in Time. Yeah. I mean, uh, during that dance sequence, yeah, you know, they do so much wire work with um, moving Mary in and even the one time where they uh, fly Bert out over the rooftops with the other dancers, you know, right, supposedly right. supporting him. And, you know, um, I mean, I, I, I mean, I will say this, the what? The wire work in this movie is basically flawless. Like you never, you never see the wires, and w- which is which is more than I can say from some later Disney productions in the, especially in the late seventies and the What Would Walt Have Done era that I've covered for the podcast. Like Cat from Outer Space, Unidentified Flying Oddball, you can absolutely see the wires. This is much earlier, and you can't. I guess they just stopped putting money into these things. But it's like fourteen years later. Superman the movie advertised itself as you will believe a man can fly. I believe people can fly in this movie and it was made a decade and a half early. Yeah. You could believe Mary could fly. You absolutely <laughs> yeah. can. Just just a a a question about step in time cuz they they do so much of that choreography uh for step in time mm-hmm. is based around Dick Van Dyke's very specific and unique talents. Like there's yeah. there's very few people who can move like a Dick Van Dyke can move. And um, they found every other dancer who could in Hollywood well, at the time, apparently. Very few of them even even can to his degree. Like, you know, actors who can move like Dick Van Dyke are, are very few I mean, dancers i mean like ray bulger sort of had that same kind of wibbly motion um and, and stuff like that but do you think that the actors kind of looked at that i mean the the other dancers uh chimney sweep dancers kind of looked at this choreography and kind of looked at it and went like ah oh, crap you know <laughs> It it certainly requires a lot of physicality. Like 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 in particular, the the shot that blows my mind is when Dick Van Dyke and two dancers, in one continuous shot, have to jump across a crevice, do a somersault, jump onto a railing, do a backward somersault, and then get up and do high kicks all in one continuous bit of action to the beat of the music. It's like who can do that? Who's limber enough to, I mean, I, I, Dick Van Dyke is still, the fact that he's still spry enough to technically dance at age like a hundred, whatever he is, you know, I, he's always been extremely limber, but it must've taken some doing to find other people who could pull that off. Yeah. I love that. uh, What was it? Some Disney special. I think it was for Mary Poppins where they had Dick Van Dyke come out and he did a little dancing still to step in time. To this day, like he in Mary Poppins go. Returns, he could still do a little. Da- I mean, I mean, he did a bit of dancing. Uh, I, 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 when I was at D twenty three in the before times in twenty nineteen, 
Um, they in, that's when they announced the since unfortunately aborted Mary Poppins ride that they were going to build at Epcot, but thank you, COVID that's canceled. Uh, but they introduced it by bringing a bunch of chimney sweeps out who are all dancing. And then Dick Van Dyke came out and he did a, he, he did a bit of a, a, he did a bit of dancing and it was amazing to, to watch that live. Like he still got it. I'm sad that that ride's never going to happen. Well, it, it, it maybe, might still happen. It's just not going to happen anytime soon. Yeah, maybe, maybe someday we'll. I mean, we've been waiting for it for for almost sixty years now. I mean, for God's sake, the profits from Mary Poppins are what allowed Walt to buy up all the Florida swampland that became Disney World, and they still have never built a, a Mary Poppins ride at any theme park. They built. They built a ride based on the movie where Yondu says, I'm Mary Poppins, y'all, before they built a ride based on Mary Poppins. That's just insane. They have a restaurant called Jolly Holiday. That's not a ride, and you know it. The thing about the uh, Step in Time and uh, Dick Van Dyke still being able to dance it, Mm -hmm. uh, the dancers who came out to do that with Dick Van Dyke um it was actually Derek Huff from Dancing with Stars uh who choreographed or re-choreographed re uh did some of that choreography uh from the movie um with Dick Van Dyke uh to work around his age and figured out kind of what he could still do um yeah, and they yeah. redid it a few years ago, right uh, for a Disney um, something or other. I forget yeah, what did, exactly. Didn't they do it for the 60th anniversary of Disneyland special? Like, like, uh, like if yeah, you, it was something like that. I feel like that's what you're talking about. Yeah, Disneyland 60. But um, but he did it with uh with Dick Van Dyke. But then yeah. they also got him to redo the entire sequence. Okay, this that wasn't the entire sequence on Disneyland um, 60, so so maybe maybe you're thinking of something else, but well, they they've gotten him to redo it three or four different times in mm-hmm. different contexts. They've gotten Derek Huff to uh, redo it for uh, Disney Night once on um, Dancing with the Stars because they do Disney mm-hmm. Night every year. Sure. Um. They've gotten him to do it with Dick Van Dyke, uh, where he danced it with Dick Van Dyke. They've gotten him to do it for Kennedy Center Honors in tribute to Dick Van Dyke when Dick Van Dyke was honored. They've gotten him to do it uh, for one of the Disney specials where he danced it with his current girlfriend and dance partner as Mary Poppins uh, during a COVID special. Um, That's at least four different times I can think of that he's danced that sequence. And I think at least one time he won an Emmy for his choreography for it. Uh, (laughs) um, But yeah, they and um, this year for Disney night, uh, Mel C from the uh, from the Spice Girls actually danced it as Mary Poppins. Um, as well so yeah that 
Um, not with Derek Huff's choreography. She danced it with a different partner. But um, Derek Huff has actually redone that choreography many, many times uh, in recent years that Disney has uh, gotten him to do it um, to uh, rather great acclaim. Uh, but he he has talked about it a few times. Um, the the original choreography and uh, uh, for the film, and he has talked about it as one of the more difficult pieces of dance choreography that he's ever done, and how impressed he was at how much of that choreography Dick Van Dyke could still do as of a couple of years ago. Nice, nice. Um, and at that time, Dick Van Dyke was like 89 or just turned 90 or something like that. So, you know, if you have unruly neighbors throwing a party, wouldn't you just want to throw fireworks at them? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I mean, I wouldn't call them the H word that <laughs> that that Admiral Boom uses. But uh, but that. <laughs> Which, which, by the way, um, it, just a brief aside, I'm not going to go too into the weeds on this, but several years ago, I came across this troll on the internet who went by the name of Atme, who was a huge fan of classic Disney, but just had the weirdest, most irrational grudge against Mary Poppins specifically. He said it was racist for using the H word, which there is certainly a strong case to be made for that being racist, but... It comes off as a bit hollow when that's being said by a guy who's simultaneously defending Song of the South. And yeah. he also and he also called it homophobic because he insisted Mary Poppin was a homophobic slang was homophobic slang for poppin' a Mary or punching a gay man. But so he's a few sugar cubes short of a spoonful, but you can search at May and Tony Goldmark on Twitter to read the rest of that story. So that the saga of at May, it is kind of glorious, but anyway, the, the, um, uh, the, the funniest thing about their, their, um, their neighbor, the Admiral, uh, was, uh, I, I tend to watch the rewatches uh with a a friend of mine using the uh the group watch feature right. over Disney Plus and uh my friend said if you had a neighbor who like built a ship on top of their house and shot cannons off all the time <laughs> wouldn't you consider that like the the local weirdo nutball or whatever and i said no 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 he's got money he's just eccentric darling yes exactly <laughs> And a lot of PTSD from the war. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, when the film is introduced, it's interesting. Like, you know, um, Bert's talking to the audience. He's, you know, it, it's all, the sets are all artificial, obviously. He's, he, his accent is atrocious. He's speaking directly to the camera, breaking the fourth wall. And then you go down Cherry Tree Lane and there's this insane admiral fucking you know shooting cannons off in the neighborhood and and the rest of the houses all have to adjust to it post everyone and <laughs> grab all the delicate vases and, and things and and it's like the movie's already kind of a cartoon even before mary poppins shows up it's like she's almost the normal one and she's <laughs> sliding up banisters really but, and I love that Admiral Boom kind of knows what's going on before anyone else does. There's a bad yeah, wind coming yeah. through. Something's going down at the at the bank's house. 
I I want to I I also want to point out uh, this doesn't really have to do what we with what we just talked about, but I want to point out that this is one of the only Disney movies ever made where both parents are alive. Oh yes, Holy no dead hell. parents. Both yes, par- thank you, either, Disney, for no dead parents in this one. Either one of the would wouldn't it be stupid? It's a it's a good thing they never made a sequel with a dead parent. That would just miss the point and be stupid, wouldn't it? Yeah, wouldn't mm. it? I said, wouldn't it? I will not be ignored. <laughs> wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so I I. I haven't talked enough about the Sherman brothers uh, just yet because you know in addition to being Walt Disney's masterpiece this movie is arguably the Sherman brothers' masterpiece even though in this case it it's way earlier in their career like like in Walt's case it was the masterpiece he'd been building up to but in the Sherman brothers case it was almost kind of the masterpiece that comes way too early and they just and it seems like they an artist just peaks way too early and then spends the rest of their career chasing that early high. Um, you, you know, I mean, before this movie, they had written songs for the sword and the stone, which weren't all that memorable. And uh, a few one-off Disney projects, probably the biggest one was the Tiki 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 room from the enchanted Tiki room. And, and then suddenly this film, they're on top of the world, they're winning Oscars, you know, and what do you do after that? They kind of talked about that in the documentary about them, the boys, the Sherman brothers story, you know, uh, later on, they went on to write the songs for such Disney musicals as the happiest millionaire and bed knobs and broomsticks. But in both cases, it kind of felt like every song in those movies was an equivalent to a song in Poppins, you know, and well, in one, most... of the, one, of the, one of the songs in bed knobs was a rejected Poppins song. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah the beautiful briny. And uh, in fact, there was a point where it looked like all of the songs from uh, from Bedknobs were going to be rejected Poppins songs because when P.L. Travers was being so difficult, Walt acquired the rights to the Magic Bedknob just as a failsafe, just so they could use the Sherman Brothers songs in this movie about a magic woman instead. And uh and they ended up, of course, not needing to do that. They came up with new stuff for bed knobs, but it did really feel like they were chasing Poppins in a lot of ways. And uh, and and in most cases, the equivalent songs they came up with for for those movies were not as good. But you know what is what is as good as Mary Poppins? In addition to writing all the songs in this movie, the Sherman Brothers also had a great deal of influence over the story as it was as it was being developed. And thus, they got to work in lots of little asides here and there and reprises that some of which are on the soundtrack album, some of which aren't, some of which are kind of just for the movie. You know, like Mr. Banks singing, you know, a British nanny must be a general to the tune of the life I lead mm. or or, or, you know, the life I lead coming back in and then turning into a reprise of Spoonful of Sugar. You know, it, it, this very malleable just kind of song stew that that they place throughout the whole movie. Yeah, and I wanna I wanna point out how much I love that each of the songs in in this film is sort of based off of a different um style almost. Um yeah. So like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious is more like a um like it, a a p 
period piece for the early 1900s. It was based on kind of um, songs that would have been popular dance songs at the time. Right. So it would have been like a dance hall song in the early 1900s. Um, But things like um, Fidelity Fiduciary Bank, they were more like a um, Gilbert and Sullivan operetta where Mm. it's more like um, kind of like a a talk singing, um, very uh, wordy kind of um, piece without much tune to it. You know, right, um, right. but like a spoonful of sugar is more like a Broadway number. Chim chim tree is like a completely different style from that. Um, and also it's, I like how they also showed off the kind of breadth of their talent. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and also they tried to make it fit the time period. Indeed. Yeah. And, um, I, I, I mean, I mean, you were talking about supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, which, um, is perhaps the most famous song in the movie. And it's probably, it's probably the single biggest and most bombastic moment in the movie, along with step in time. And of course the word itself becomes a running theme in the rest of the film. And as kind of a shorthand for the value of nonsense itself, but the song itself, and you were talking about this with your gripes about the animated sequence. The song itself only takes up two minutes of screen time. That's it. It's just this quick whirlwind of whimsy that electrifies the screen, leaves a hell of an impact, and then boom, it's done before it wears out its welcome. And uh, and and that's p- part of why it works so well. And incidentally, I, I also... I, I would be remiss to not point out that later on, Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious was covered by none other than DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince for the Disneyland 35th anniversary special in 1990. If you have never seen the spectacle of Will Smith rapping supercalifragilisticexpialidocious go look it up you owe it to yourself you're in for one hell of a treat you're welcome but one thing that i had forgotten until i watched this movie again for this is that the whole time this whole movie is comes because the kids just want their dad to fly a kite with them yeah yeah that is the entire thing they start the movie with the broken kite saying we can fix it Dad, can you fly the kite with us one day? And he's too busy to do that. Finally, at the end of the movie, he fixes the kite with the newspaper, and then they fly the kite, and that's where Mary leaves. Yeah, and, and, and you know, again, Let's Go Fly a Kite uh, is a great song, but again, again, not a very bombastic one, all things considered, especially for a closing number. In fact, the Sherman Brothers originally pitched a much bigger closing number and Walt specifically said, no, I want it much smaller. You know, he he had that confidence in the movie that we don't need the ending to be the biggest thing ever. We we kind of, it, it should be big, but not too big. 
And again, I do think that's where Mary Poppins Returns faltered a little because it was so blatantly insecure, it had to inject all of the bombast into its equivalent number, nowhere to go but up, and suddenly everyone's flying, and, you know, it... it it, it I, I guess it worked on its own, but it, it you did get you did get the feeling like wow they are really trying hard here. <laughs> this yeah yeah. But you know the family is kind of happy. The audience is kind of sad. Yeah, at the end but of the movie. It, it's it's a bittersweet ending definitely because the family is back together and happy, but. Mary Poppins has to go to some has to go somewhere else and fix some other family, presumably. And, and we're I'm, seeing it from the perspective of both Mary and Bert, because we see the family go away and they're like, Yay, kite! And they're off in the park and like, Yay, dad's gonna go back to the bank because he did a murder. And you're like, <laughs> Okay, yay, I guess. But like then we move over and we see Bert, and Bert's yeah. like, oh, Bert. hi, Mary Poppins. And you're like, oh, sad for Bert, because, like, his friend is going away. Yeah. And we see it from the perspective of Mary, who is, like, leaving kids that her umbrella is just like, shut up, girl. You know you love them. <laughs> and she's like, shut up, you cheeky little umbrella, you know? Well, Dick Van Dyke says, you know, goodbye, Mary Poppins. Don't stay away too long. Only 54 years. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, but we see it from the two characters. Like, the family hasn't even noticed she's left yet. So they're yeah, just yeah. like, yay, kite. But we actually see it from the perspective of the two characters who realize, like, this is an ending. Yeah. So, like, in the back is like, yay, let's go fly a kite and all. But the audience knows, like, okay, yeah, but this is kind of sad. And as soon as the family comes home, they're going to be like, Mary Poppins? They're going to realize, like, nah, she's gone. I mean, the kids have kind of realized it. She did. <laughs> but, you know. I I, I mean, it's, it's also a quick snack that the umbrella measures in itself is that, they're all sad that she's that she has to leave because the wind changed, and you know, oh, you're not gonna say goodbye to us. But as soon as their dad comes in with the kite, they kind of forget all about Mary Poppins, and as the brother, they didn't say goodbye to you. Yeah. Well, because they're kids, and kids yeah. are awful. They're, they're they're flighty. You know, it it doesn't it doesn't matter. The problem is resolved, and and she just kind of worked behind she was kind of candle clandestinely you know helping the problem get solved without needing to make that big a show of it it's like she she served her purpose and now she has to go to go to some other kid that needs help yeah presumably. or another family that, need, that needs help or maybe just to screw off into the clouds again for 54 years <laughs> who knows she, she, you know she her and goku can ride clouds yes <laughs> Her, I mean, her and th them and the stork from Dumbo all sitting on clouds. <laughs> that I honestly feel like as much as Mary Poppins Returns was all right, I always feel like why did she go back to the Bankses? Why not? Why not have that sequel be another family or something? Yeah, they, they, that's true. That's true. Why not? I I, I guess they figured oh, you want to catch up with what the Bankses are up to by this point. But I mean, even in the books, Travers had her go back to the Bankses. Yeah, that's true. That is. Every time. 
it really does begin to sound like a horror story. It's just like every generation of Banks children is plagued by the weird, you know, mysterious thing that is Mary Poppins. You know? I mean, you've—I'm sure you've seen Scary Poppins, the YouTube video. Ah, uh, yeah, right? I, I do. Well, head. yeah, I mean, I mean, there are there are tons of of versions of people, you know, thinking about like, what if Mary Poppins was somehow sinister, but you know, it's like it, it's it's very Peter Pan in that way. You know, it's like, well, what right, if the right. same family is just visited every generation by the this same supernatural force? You know, we did a third one. It said in modern times, the uh, the 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 descendant of the Banks family meeting Mary Poppins, who is somehow still in her early thirties. <laughs> yeah, because she never ages, of course, but. The Time Lord. <laughs> Absolutely. She's definitely a Time Lord. The other, it, she's a Time Lord that went to Hogwarts and all the other memes everyone's ever made about Mary Poppins rolled into one. Absolutely. I, I, I also want to point out, this was a very personal movie for Walt, you know, in how the father related to the children. Like, Walt was famously a huge workaholic and and never felt like he had enough time for his own two daughters. So he was very personally invested in making this Mr. Banks' story at the heart of it. Uh, you know, he's the one who gets the sharpest character arc. As they pointed out in Saving Mr. Banks, there's a reason that Mr. Banks has a mustache. Because Walt had a mustache. Exactly, exactly. Or, or as, although, as, although I will say that Mr. Banks needed some, like, mustache wax because that mustache was all over the place. <laughs> Yeah, that, like that's get true. a comb and brush that thing down into some kind of, you know, I, I, it really distracted me during the rewatch. I was like, oh, my goodness, dude, brush that thing down. Get some wax like the police officer has a better mustache than Mr. Banks. <laughs> yeah, form it into some kind of, you know, decent shape, dude. You got a problem with un with ungainly mustaches? <laughs> <sighs> You got you got a problem with unkempt facial hair? Only on British people, apparently. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, just just with yeah, it upper, feels weird upper with, with... class upper class twits. Like yeah, it just feels weird that that is is. But like like on me, it doesn't make any difference because I'm a fat slob. But <laughs> the um us lower class folk can do yeah, whatever us we surfs, want. But if we're gonna be a posh banker dude. The uh, but but yeah, it uh, I, I get the feeling, you know, this was released only two years before Walt passed away. And I do get the feeling that he was starting to get aware of his own mortality. He was a heavy smoker and it was ultimately lung cancer that took him. And even at the time, as depicted in Saving Mr. Banks, he had this hacking cough that would just constantly not go away and that would warn people that he was on his way he would just you know be hacking his lungs out in the in the hallways and that would inform people oh man is in the forest walt walt is coming gotta gotta be ready to present your work to him and but we gotta make sure to digitally erase all the cigarettes from the pictures in the park of course <laughs> yeah. yep yeah can't have any of that he just pointed naturally with two fingers now everyone who works there has to do the same thing. <laughs> yep. So uh, I, I have a few more scant notes on the movie. Uh, Go for the, it. The different colored medicine from the same bottle 
that was not some camera trick. That was actually a trick bottle that the prop people rigged up that would that could pour out three entirely different colors of liquid. And um, Karen and Karen Dautras, who played Jane, of course, was genuinely shocked when that happened. That startled exclamation she she lets loose with in the movie. That's real. And apparently they used the first take because her reaction was so genuine to that. Like she she didn't realize that was going to happen. Okay, can I say something? Yeah. And you're going you're going to laugh at me. We'll see about I that. I have I have never ever noticed that there are three <laughs> different colors of medicine. Yeah, there. Watch it again. There, she she <laughs> into the three different teaspoons. She pours. I out. watched this thing on a 4K Ultra High Def. <laughs> watch it night. on. Watch I've it on 4K again. Right before, right after the animated sequence and before Stay Awake, there's a scene where she's pouring medicine yeah, into three the teaspoons. Scene. I just, I've it's, never It's three different colors. It's three different colors. Watch it again. I, I know that they say that it's three different flavors. You're not, you're not colorblind, are you? I'm not, no. Okay, well, but, you watch it again. You'll ca- look for it this I time. I mean, if, if you're not paying attention, you're not going to really notice it. Right, right. You have to I actually be looking at the spoons. That they've, that they've said that it's, you know three different flavors but it's also but I, three different colors watch it again. I, i've never noticed that yeah yeah uh and, and and that's why jane elicits that you know shriek that ah you know when 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 the when it gets I poured wondered why she did that i was like are it's you really that scared of medicine <laughs> it's because the color it's because the color was different and that was karen dotris's genuine <laughs> scream because she didn't know it but I, apparently she's more observant than you <laughs> yeah well, I'm I'm sure if it was in front of my face, I just never noticed it on screen. <laughs> Another really cool special effect in this movie that we haven't pointed out yet, the carpet bag stuff with with her pulling all this crazy stuff out of her bag. Time Lord I, technology, bigger on the inside. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If she's a Time Lord, confirmation again. I'm still not entirely sure how they did that with 60s technology. Like nowadays, it would be perfectly easy. I, but I, I know I know exactly how they did that because I, I, mean, I. It's the same. It's the same way or a similar way they do it in the stage play. Um, because that it's the same. It's the same way they they do it. I mean, I'm I'm not going to explain it on the podcast because honestly it is a magician's trick and there are right, some people right. who just do not want to know how magicians do their trick um but it is actually a very 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 old magician stage trick but the and scene- if you do want to know how it's done you can actually look it up online in magicians forums but the scene where michael crawls under the table while she's taking the plant out of the bag like i I, I guess that's yeah it's actually you can do that on on stage i mean penn and penn and teller do that sort of thing all the time it's it's yeah it's it's interesting to see it done and in the movie it's done with a combination of that and like green screen because you can actually see the matte lines um, for for the green screen as well. Right. right. Um, so they did kind of you know um, do that, and it's how they're able to do it in the in the stage show. Um, 
when they do the musicals. Um, mm-hmm. But it is it is actually just a, a really like it's like an 1800s magician stage trick that they just did on film yeah um i i, I another another note i want to see a, a fanfic or something or a crossover where mary poppins accidentally switches tape measures with blendon blandon and accidentally goes back in time <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah because that's also how she's a time lord. Maybe she yeah. was a time lord, and that was, and then, but she switched tape measures with Blendon Blandon before the events of the movie, and she's like, oh, I guess I gotta just judge people now. Like, <laughs> Blendon seems pretty judgy. It seems like that'd be his time of tape measure. Yeah. I mean, we we don't know how old Mary Poppins actually is. That is true. We have she, no idea. She's just permanently thirty-ish years old, so we don't know how long she's been on this mortal coil. A, a couple lines of dialogue I wanna uh, I wanna underline here. Um, when Mr. Banks says, "Would you be good enough to explain this unseemly hullabaloo?" They just don't write him like that anymore. <laughs> you got to love that. Um, and and also, oh, pro- probably my favorite line. Remember five days ago when you asked us all our favorite moments in the movie. My absolute favorite moment in the movie, just because it never fails to get a laugh out of me, is when Mary Poppins is tricking Mr. Banks into taking the children on the outing to the bank. And she and she sings, when gazing at a graph that shows the profits up, their little cup of joy should overflow. <laughs> it's so something about the delivery of that. It's so sad. It's hilarious. Like. And, yeah. and, he, and he wholeheartedly agrees with her as well. She's precisely, see, you get it. <laughs> not realizing that she's mocking him. Of course, it's, it's brilliant. Speaking of not realizing someone's mocking you, I, I noticed towards the end, the, the dad's full name is revealed as George W. Banks. So, ah, shit, he's going to invade Iraq. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, I mean, he is... You know, the British banking system was an arm of the imperial. That is true. You know, so, I mean. It's all connected. Probably, you know. Um, When they're when they're nervous because he hasn't returned home yet. And one of the maids says, wouldn't hurt to drain the river. There's a nice spot there popular with jumpers. Yeah. <laughs> this shit just got real. Holy <laughs> and well, even the cop there was saying, a run uh, on the that, bank. That, even the cop is saying, you know, there might be hanky panky involved. Right, right. Uh, oh, and also the um, the the burn towards Americans when when he's at the bank and they're recounting the Boston Tea Party. You know, this made the sea, this made the tea unsuitable for drinking, even for Americans. I, I laughed at that. <laughs> I mean, he is right. Let's face it. We Americans can't make a decent cup of tea to save our lives. I but, mean, speak for yourself. Well, <laughs> well, 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 most of us, most of us have never. I had a decent cup of tea. Um, I I love the little details in this movie. Like like it's gotten this mostly deserved reputation for being a big important movie. But I love that it's also got room for little tiny things that you notice that 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 enhance the movie. Like for example, the little spring in Mary Poppins's step when she says the word gingerbread. Or um or or just the way Mr. Banks nervously scratches his legs with his shoes while he's waiting to be let into the to the conference room. It's just such great character beats. 
and, yeah, and um, how, how he falls into step with the weird bank guards. Right, right. In there. <laughs> or the interesting thing that, like, a lot of people won't understand, but when Banks is getting fired. Right. And they're giving him the dressing down. When the the guy takes his bowler hat. It turns his umbrella punches, inside out. But yeah, specifically and- the bowler hat. When he takes his bowler hat off and it's the final thing he does. And then he punches his bowler hat. Right. What we don't understand, like especially as Americans and modern Americans. Is that during that time period, bankers in England were required to wear that hat. Hmm, okay. It was part of their uniform. Huh, all right. You had to wear that specific type of hat to well, the show old, you were a banker. Well, the old bankers aren't wearing them, though. It's... um, So... Well, the type of banker he was, like, okay, okay, if you like, owned like only... the bank, you know, but sure, if you sure. were in Banks's position, okay, he was just an okay. employee. He wasn't on the board. Yeah. Gotcha. So, and that it, and it... moment where he destroys the hat would kind of be like, you know, them taking your uniform and like ripping it or something yeah it, it it completes his transformation into charlie chaplin basically into, into yeah. the little tramp <laughs> i love how like one of the board members like the big thing that upsets him is the fact they turned the umbrella inside out like, don't do <laughs> no, that not that anything but that <laughs> you know but i love the little touches like that like because it would be such a Absolutely. And those hats were kind of expensive because you had to, you know, get them kind of specifically made at the haberdasher. Right, but, right, right. but also it's, it's something so specific and so, um, you know, so insulting, but it's kind of interesting that with time, they are completely lost on us. Like well, it just, an it, older it, person in the sixties in England watching would have that, would go that like, yeah. oh my goodness, not his hat, you know, like. Well, well, to us, it, 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 watching today, it just seems like, oh, that's a mean thing to do. It, yeah, it's it just a little excessive, <laughs> a little excessive, mean. ruining the man's hat. A, a simple, a simple, you're fired would have sufficed. <laughs> but it, it is so resonant and meaningful in that time in that play you know but it's it's just kind of lost to us now you know imagine if that's how firing worked today it's like not only not not only are you fired but you also got to get your hat and umbrella destroyed yeah yeah i mean from a modern perspective it's just unneeded humiliation which right right it does work with the scene yeah yeah it still works even if you don't know what it means yeah so is there is there anything else you guys wanted to talk about well, uh, we think... always end with our question. Yes, much like you on your on your podcast, we have the same question here. Does right. does Mary Poppins have the magic, Tony? I say absolutely yes, it does. It's one of the best films 
that Disney has ever released to this day. I'd say certainly the best live action film released during that, that Walt Disney released during his lifetime. Uh, if you're including the animated ones, there's a few that there's a scant handful of contenders to that throne. Like, like I might put Dumbo slightly above this, but overall, I do think Mary Poppins is just absolute cream of the crop Disney magic. Kiki. Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, there there are parts I like better than others, as discussed. But overall, you can't really fault this as a film, can you? No, nah. no, you cannot. What are you, some sort of monster? Yeah. Uh, it is unanimous. This movie absolutely has the magic all of these years later, almost 60 years later. Oh, it's so it was. Yeah, it has I, flaws. It has its flaws, but it it has so much charm in it that you can kind of overlook them. This definitely is a classic. This definitely has the magic. Uh, well worth waiting 100 episodes for, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, definitely. I didn't have to wait any, so yay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so now that that's done, um, usually we ask our, our guests to give a request. But uh, you have chosen... Uh, to use your randomizer on, on well well mr tuesday i think i'd like to take a cue from my own podcast escape from vault disney and defer my request to my almighty randomizer uh if i may sure smart house initiate random shuffle mode please initiating random shuffle mode make a selection and the winner is Star Wars, The Last Jedi. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> Hit the jackpot on this one. Wow. Yeah. You know, I've never gotten any Star Wars stuff. I mean, I did do a one movie later on Last Jedi when it first came out, but that was like the opening night reaction to it. So I didn't get Well, I later kind of did an addition to that about you know the top 12 hottest takes on The Last Jedi. But but yeah, I've, I've talked about The Last Jedi before, but I've never gotten any Star Wars stuff for the podcast, so uh, enjoy, I guess. <laughs> well, it, this is kind of everybody's, uh, you either love it's it the or most, you hate it. <laughs> I love it, personally. I think the hatred for it is so stupid. It's the most needlessly controversial Star Wars movie ever made. Uh, so knock yourselves out, I guess. <laughs> well, I I will say that uh, we're we're gonna have to wait a, a couple of weeks to to talk about this one because we do have to get through the rest of our our spooky month. Okay. Uh, yeah, that will be in about a few weeks. That will be in November. Gotcha. Because next week is our Halloween episode, and we are once again uh, deviating from. Disney Plus for next week because Disney now owns 20th Century Fox. So we can do a really good movie for Halloween. And uh, as the old saying goes, in space, no one can hear you scream as we are doing Alien. Join the us. Alien, the fact that Alien is now a Disney movie. <laughs> Well, it was almost a Disney ride. Alien Encounter that used to be at Disney World was almost based on the Xenomorphs. And there was an alien scene in Great Movie Ride. So. Yeah. Or at, at, but as Lisa Simpson said, what do aliens have to do with Halloween? Silence! <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, so, we will we will get our proper spoop on uh, next week. So uh, join us then. And it has been an amazing 100th episode. Thank you, Tony, so much for joining us. This has th- been amazing. Thank you so much for having me. May I, may I plug my stuff? Absolutely. All right. All right. I have a podcast of my own, as we mentioned, Escape from Vault Disney where me and a rotating series of guests review movies, TV shows, and short films available on Disney+, Plus, chosen completely at random most of the time. And occasionally we do like guest choice episodes or theme months or something, or uh, in the case of the rest of this month, a couple of Halloween episodes, but usually it's chosen completely at random. You can follow me on Twitter at Tony Goldmark. You can follow the escape from vault disney on twitter at efvd podcast i've got a facebook fan group you can join some jerk with a fan club i've got an old youtube channel that's now mainly used for promoting the podcast but uh the archives of it contain all three seasons of my old web series some jerk with a camera so go check all of that out and the podcast of course is available pretty much wherever podcasts are available apple Podcasts, google play spotify the the whole megillah so go check it out at those places and yeah that's me <laughs> all right thank you tony for joining us and no uh problem. yeah join us next week for alien to fit to uh wrap up october and we will talk to you all then bye, bye. Don't let the magic stop here. Join our conversation online on Facebook at Rewatching the Magic. Twitter at Rewatch the Magic. And of course, new episodes every week at rewatchingthemagic.podbean.com. Remember, the magic is for everyone. It only stops if you let it.